The passage for today is Hebrews chapter 11. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the convictions of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what we what so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he, did, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found, because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commented, he was what? He was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is possible to please him. It is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he commend, he can condemned the world, there's a lot of cons in this, <laughs> condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that he is that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven, and as many as the innumerable, innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted, greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of his sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king king's edict. By faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused not to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. 
He considered the repro reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking, for, looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood, so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. By faith the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient, because she had give, given a friendly welcome to the spies. And what more shall I say? For time would fail, fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Japheth, of David and Samuel, and of the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refused to accept release, so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging, and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all of these, though, com though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. This is the word of God. Well, we are, of course, continuing this summer series in discipleship. As we, as we get through this series and, and navigate through what it means to be disciples, we are moving from the call of discipleship, the call of following God, to what it means to be, be a disciple, what it means to follow Jesus who that, what kind of person inside, when we listen to the call of Jesus, when we listen to, and we, we understand the authority, as we've talked about, um, and we even understand that he is asking us to turn from a life and move into a life. Last week we talked about this sort of idea of turning, following Christ as Peter walks out into the water and steps out, that he is looking forward to Christ and that he has to focus, he has to let other things fall away because as soon as he looks over to the wind, he begins to sink. And as one of the techniques for that, we are to sort of burn down the parts of our life, burn down the pieces of our life that, that are getting in the way, that are distracting us. And ultimately, uh, what we are to become as disciples is to become people of faith. In God. To follow Jesus is to be a person of faith in God. So I chose what is probably the most famous chapter in the Bible on faith, uh, who many of us have heard many, many times, or at least have had triggered our memory by faith, by faith, walking through these people of faith in the Bible. And we have to, we have to ask this, what is a person, what does it mean to be a person of faith? If, if we're, we're baptized, if we become Christians, we profess that we believe in Christ as our Savior, then what does it mean to be a person of faith? 
Well, the author of Hebrews puts it this way in the beginning in verse 1. He says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. That's what faith is. He's, he's sort of describing faith. It, it, in it, it has the assurance, which another word for assurance might be confidence, peace. We have the peace of things hoped for. We have the confidence of things hoped for. All of the things that you and I hope for in our day, all of the things that we, we desire, at the kernel of that is some sense of desiring after truth and goodness and meaning. There is some kernel that we desire after in our life that we hope for, where heaven is in that. Now the question is, how do we bring that to pass? But all of us here can say the world is a broken place, that I desire more than what is here. Every human inside of them has a void that they are trying to fill. We're all hoping for something better. But to be a person of faith means you have an assurance, you have a confidence of those things hoped for. The world cannot give you that. The world can only give you sort of these physical, temporal things that are tied to people and places and stuff, that are tied to experiences. But at the end, we know that at the end of our life, we will die. And so there is no assurance in this life apart from God. There is no conviction for things unseen apart from trusting that what he says is true and good. So today what I want to do is I want to ask the question, how does our faith assure us and give us confidence? How does our faith calm us into a peace? When Paul writes his letters, he always ends grace and peace because he wants to give them Jesus and he knows that if you have faith in Jesus there is sort of a, a deep inner calm does not mean that life will not blow you around and that there will not be moments of hurry and moments of, of really urgency and, and, and saving other people and rushing around that doesn't mean that it means inside there is a deep inner confidence that what you are doing has meaning and purpose and you are not alone in this chapter, we walk through um, what's, what some people have called the Hall of Faith, kind of like that. Hall of Fame, right? It's, it's, it's stepping through the Old Testament heroes as examples of people of faith. But perhaps it's a little bit removed for those of us who uh, per, perhaps didn't grow up with a lot of Old Testament in our upbringing, perhaps didn't grow up with a, um, a deep rootedness in all these characters of the Bible. And we, we listen to this and we go, Enoch didn't even die, walk with God, who's that guy? Or we, we listen to uh, Abel and Cain and we don't know the finer points or Abraham. So I want to start with this. I want to I give you an example of a modern, modern person of great faith. There are, of course, so many. I'm just going to pick one that's especially pertinent right now, who we all know. Martin Luther King Jr., right? as a preacher, as a person who, who is a modern example of faith. With great faith, with prophetic voice, Martin Luther King Jr. saw in the Bible a prophecy of a world free of racism. He saw it clear as day in the stories of Exodus, in the stories of Moses. And he grabbed onto those claims because he knew, because he believed as a preacher, he believed he had conviction and assurance that these things which he hoped for, that this world that he saw, that this vision that was, that was stated so clearly in the Bible 
would eventually one day come to pass. And that it was his role in his way to be a person who grabbed onto that and brought it into the world in whatever way he could. So he said this in his most famous speech. He said, I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. I have a dream that one day down in Alabama with its vicious racists, with its governor having his lips dripping with the words of interposition and nullification, one day right there in Alabama, little black boys and black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and white girls as sisters and brothers. I have a dream today. And in this speech, in what was probably the most seminal moment in civil rights history, we see that clearly we benefit from people who have great faith because they bring into the world something which was not already in the world, but which something was promised to be in the world, a justice which is unseen. And of course, we know that Martin Luther King Jr. was a person of great faith because in many interviews he talked about this at length. There were many attempts on his life and so his life in itself, he learned to hold with a loose grip. That his life was about something so much bigger than just his living and breathing and his retirement and his, even his kids coming, him coming home and seeing his kids and them saying, Daddy, he knew that there was something greater and bigger. That when he was talking about these boys and girls, that he was not just talking about his kids and his vision and his hope for his life. He said, like anybody, I would like to have a long life. Longevity has its place, but I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he allowed me to go up to the mountain, and I've looked over, and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as people, we will get to the promised land. Listen to the, the confidence that he says that with, we will get to the promised land. So I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. Remember, this man has just had attempts on his life. I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. Gosh, as people who follow Jesus, we are people that are given all of the ingredients for that kind of faith. There is nothing removed from us that Martin Luther King Jr. had. It was just the conviction and the reliance tethering his life completely to that message and to that promise. He was doubling down on his faith. And so, let's, let's, as we navigate through this text, imagine these characters with that sort of sense of knowing that you have around somebody in our recent history, Inter like place that on top of these characters who you maybe know less. Know that these are people that maybe much more even were people divinely proclaimed to be people of faith. Abraham, Enoch, Abel, Noah, all of these people. Imagine this, as I was reading this, um, section I thought of, have any of you been to like the Museum of Natural History in New York is a good example. There might be some museums in town where they have wax museums, right? They have the characters that are, that are sort of 
cast out of wax. And they, they get this kind of strange um, lifelikeness. It's uncanny, but it's so detailed, right? And they're in these poses, and they're set up in these dioramas. And in that moment, in that stage that they set up with the painted backdrop, in that dark museum, you sort of step into the space and you look out and it's as if you see into another moment locked in time and you get, you get some deeper sense of what, the li what these people lived like, what they went through, what it might have been like. You can sort of step in and imagine with them. And I, and I see the author of Hebrews sort of taking our hand as a tour guide and the, the spirit through the word, is leading us as a tour guide through these historical moments that are locked in time, like we are walking through a wax museum. And before he even gets in there, he says, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. So it was seen was not made out of things that are visible. It's, it's as if he's saying, yes, on one level, these people had to believe in something beyond the beginning. Someone beyond the beginning, but he also says, what you're seeing here are people who brought the invisible into the visible. You are experiencing a record of supernatural events. And you are seeing in these people, in these dioramas, the fruit of faith. And these, these people were given commendations, as Heather said, right? What's a commendation? It's like a medal of honor. Right? It's not that by their works they are somehow holy and saved. It's because of their faith that all of these people have medals of honor hanging. And we can point to them and we can say, examine the character of this one. Because he is wearing the medal or she is wearing the medal. And the other ironic thing about this is by faith, it says verse 3, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of the things that are visible. These are all people who at their time and place were viewed as utter fools. Utter fools. They were believing in something that wasn't there. They were leaving homelands into exile with staying in tents when they could have plenty and be at home with mom and dad and have security and comfort, and they went out. Right now we look at Dr. King as somebody with great wisdom and great insight. But in the moment, in those times, there was so many people calling him a fool. Even from the black community, there was people on both sides with different approaches saying, that's foolish, we can't do that. So don't for a second think that these heroes of faith were not living in worlds full of turmoil and in their heart assaulted by the things that you and I are assaulted by, the doubts and the fears. But they held on to, in their conviction and their faith, the fact that their lives were lived in a pilgrimage. He says, Dr. King says, and I've looked over and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you. He's stepping into the, sh the direct shoes of Moses standing on the mountain, knowing that he will not get into the land of Canaan, but he will do everything he can to follow God because God has promised that his people will be there. And so we begin this pilgrimage 
with a number of different people. I'm not going to have time to go through every character that we focus on in this, in this story. I'm going to spend a lot of time in front of the wax diorama of Abraham and Sarah. Because it's in these people that we see a certain pilgrimage. That we see that they have, they have left. Abraham left his father in Ur of the Chaldeans of the place of the Babylonians. And he went out following the call of God into a new place to become a new people. Hebrews 8, chapter, chapter 11, verse 8 says, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. Of course, he knew in some sense where he was going. But in another sense, he had no idea. What do I mean by that? He knew that he was following God wherever he was going. Even if the physical destinations, even if the life plan, even if everything was not plotted out, he didn't have an exact vision of what that meant for his life. He knew that my life is a pilgrimage now because I have been called and I will follow God Almighty. In the story of Abraham in Genesis 12, verse 1, this is what the call looks like. The Lord said to Abram, which was his name before he was renamed to Abraham, Go from your country and from your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. Doesn't that fit with everything we've talked about so far as people who live in faith And we know that, that Abraham, at this moment, was a man who was not at home in the world. Perhaps in his heart prior to that call, there had been a sense of unease that there's more than this. That he was not at home in this world. That his life was actually a pilgrimage to what we'll hear later is called a better country. In fact, here, here it is in Hebrews 11 verse 14. When the author is summing up what this life for Abraham looked like, what this pilgrimage looked like, he says this, he says, these people, including Abraham and his offspring, they all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland, and if they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have the opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. So the first thing we can learn that brings the confidence and calmness and peace for us as people that follow Jesus is that the heroes of faith we find in their lives that faith kept them hopeful. So, as you're thinking about your own faith, think about this. Are you hopeful in your life? Is there an unshakable hope that is tied to nothing of this world, but to a homeland? To a better country that you are traveling to. To a heavenly country that is outside 
of this world because people like Abraham and people like Dr. King understood this and they let their faith be tied to a desire for a better world even if they may never see that world in this lifetime, they would still be people that were heading to it and bringing people to follow with them. And in whatever way they could to bring it to bear on the world as they were doing so. They had a certain confidence. They had a sense that it is true what they are doing. These men and women of faith understood that it is better to seek a land of uncomfortable truth than to make a comfortable home in a culture that is a lie. I think that's the crux of it for us. So many of us become either desirous, desiring, wanting the world around us, in some ways complacent and content, because after one too many hits on the jaw, we're just giving up the hope of the bigger, better thing. And we're just deciding we'll make what we can. It's as if Abraham never left Ur of the Chaldeans, and we never had any of the story of the Bible. What imagine the repercussions of that now in retrospect with what we can see, that we as people are tied to Abraham's great faith, that we stand on his shoulders, and that we can learn from him that we should be people that are hopeful. The second thing that we learn is that these are people, these heroes, their faith kept them focused, and it helped them refocus. Now, how did they do this? Let's, let's jump into the story of Enoch here in verse 5. I realize I'm going a little bit out of order here. Let's step over in the wax museum to the sculpture of Enoch, who we know walked with God. I imagine Enoch sort of in that same landscape as Methuselah, the oldest man that ever lived. For some reason, I see this just huge white beard, you know, this ancient man. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Now, that last line, there's a lot there. Whoever would draw near to God must first believe that he exists. That seems pretty self-explanatory. And second... And harder, that he will reward those who seek him. See, Enoch did both. He didn't just believe God existed. He walked with him like Adam walked with God in the cool of the day. Having conversations, desiring to be with him. Excited for their meetup, their hangout. Excited for their time together. He walked with God. That's how we know Enoch. He's always explained as the man who walked with God. I don't know about you, but if I go on a silent walk with somebody, that's pretty weird. If you go to hang out with somebody and you're just quiet the entire walk, now there is a rare occasion where you just know each other really well and you don't need to talk. But for the most part, if you went to hang out with your friend and you were silent the whole time, at some point your friend would say, what's up? Right? So Enoch, when he was walking with God, he was talking with God. We can see in Psalm 1 a connection. Enoch is sort of the Psalm 1 
person in the Bible. We know that the Psalm 1 begins opening the Psalm saying, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. So there's a connection between walking and talking. Between walking and loving and being with. So we can first see that what kept the heroes focused in this world in which they were completely separated from the world, where they lived in exile in their own bodies, in their own places, seeking a spiritual homeland, that the only way that you can have true companionship in that space is to talk with God, your companion, because you are alone with the rest of the world. You are uncomfortable with it. You are now comfortable with the one true God, and you must speak to him. And so at this point, we realize that to be a person who follows Jesus, to be a person who we would raise our hand and say, I have faith, is to be a person who prays. So I'm going to challenge us now very practically and ask us this question. We proclaim to be people who believe, people of faith. Are we people who pray? Are we people who are walking with God and looking forward to that appointment and that time to hang out? And we're both listening and asking, which we'll get to more in a minute. But are we people who our hope is tied in the fact that he exists and he is good? And that keeps us focused, wanting to be with him, to pray with him. So this notion of a pilgrimage is actually like a pretty common pop culture notion, right? We have pilgrimages all over the place. Obviously, the one probably we know the best in in the religious space is is the Muslim pilgrimage to Mecca, right? That they take this pilgrimage to the city of the prophet. Of course, there's many others in the Christian faith. There's the Camino de Santiago, right? This long, amazing walk through Spain that people, people in some point in their life, they put on their bucket list, I'm going to go on this pilgrimage, walking through the steps of the people of old, of the faithful, who desired to know God, who desired to find meaning, who desired to find him. I'm going to step through their steps in a desire, in a pilgrimage. It's a famous movie, or not famous, but a well-known movie came out recently with Martin Sheen called The Way. It was about the pilgrimage, about the Camino. And in these stories, you always have conversations and encounters that sort of stand in place of, they become sort of a metaphor of our life. That in this short pilgrimage story, you follow a character who encounters the the existential questions that we face in our own lives. That's what these stories are about. They're sort of to paint a picture for us. To say your life is a pilgrimage. And when you go on this pilgrimage, you are attempting to find some meaning of what it's all about. That's why you've stepped away from the world. That's why you've gone. You've picked select people or you've gone alone and you've gone on this long journey. In 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 the Pacific Northwest... Perhaps one of the well-known stories we have is Cheryl Strayed's uh, book, Wild. I think she lives not far from here in Portland. Her life completely falls apart. All sorts of things happen, and she's bereft and saying, in in her midlife, saying, everything I thought my life was about, it's no longer about. See, actually, exile has been forced upon her through the circumstances and her idols and dreams and things being broken, and by the way, Cheryl Strayed, as far as I know, is not Christian. So this is not coming from a Christian perspective. This is just coming from a human perspective. Of you, you latch on to things in life. 
And when they leave, you have the void again. And if you're not latching onto something bigger and greater out there, then these will take you into places of turmoil and longing. And she went and hiked the Pacific Crest Trail in ways to find life again. What is it about? What does it mean? The movie was made starring Reese Witherspoon, the story. She encounters bears, right? She has to deal with survival. And in this kind of story, nature itself is sort of the image of God. It's the thing that is so much bigger than you, and when you step out into it, you realize the enormity of the world, of the universe of life, and you are forced to sort of examine your own smallness and say, what is my life about? What do I want to do? So this idea of a pilgrimage is, in pop culture is at the core of what it means to be human. We understand this idea. So I want to I urge us today to see our life as a lifelong version of these short pilgrimages. That actually right now you are on a pilgrim, pilgrimage. Right now you are hiking to a place. Now what Abraham realized in his pilgrimage is that he was hiking to a better country. One that he would never see in this life. A heavenly city. That's harder to do. Because in the Camino, you get to the end and you're done. At the Pacific Crest Trail, you get to Canada. You've walked it. But everybody who's ever walked one of those trails knows that at the end of it, it's not like suddenly everything is crystallized and makes sense. No, now you go and live your life. You continue because it is a lifelong pilgrimage. And unlike those who had dived into nature, trying to discern and understand their meaning, who maybe communicated with God through these encounters with bears, we have a God who speaks to us. And we see with Enoch that we have an HQ, that we have a Houston. When I, when I play with my kids, sometimes we do spaceship, right? And we, we get ready for takeoff, and we do launch, and we go, Houston, this, this, this is Spaceship Odyssey. You know, and we come in, come out, right? And when we do that, we're communicating with HQ. And HQ, Houston, has eyes in the sky, so to speak, right? If you're on a military mission and you're out deployed, you follow orders, and there are eyes in the sky that can see more than you can see. And so we could, Enoch is communicating with headquarters. He's communicating with headquarters because he trusts and actually believes that the message that headquarters has for him, that Houston has, is going to safely land his space shuttle. Not in this life, but in the great beyond. But in what we call heaven, in the eternity that we will be part of the master plan. And I think what we, we need to look at as we examine this, pilgrim, uh, this, this focus with prayer, these focused heroes, is to ask ourselves this question about prayer. If, when I raise my hand to ask, or to sort of prod you to say, what is your prayer life like as a person of faith? I want to push on that a little more. Because prayer is a really good indicator of our faith. Why? Because prayer is literally of no use if you don't have faith that God exists and that he is a good God who will reward those 
who serve him. There's literally no use to prayer. So if you are not praying right now, I want to challenge you that perhaps your lack of a prayer life and your lack of commitment to that shows that you actually view that prayer has no great use. That you do all of the other things to bring the kingdom to bear. You love social justice and you, and you love caring for people and you love helping the hungry and the homeless and you love getting in there and getting it done yourself. But when you need to pray for God Almighty to do it and for you to do nothing, maybe those prayers don't come to fruition. You don't actually do them because deep inside you've decided that they're of no use. And that should be a sign to you that perhaps you have a weak faith. Because prayers that we can see are of great use with faith and no use without it. And of course, we've been taught many ways to pray. And some of us have been taught that it's, it's not really okay to pray anything other than to be glad and thankful. And to kind of go through our list of what we ask for and to say, it's okay, God, thy will, you know. Some of us are very good at that. And none of that is wrong. But I think we need to become more comfortable with what J.I. Packer calls complaining at God. Psalms, the Psalms of Lament, where David 22 times in the Psalm says, How long? David's complaining, right? He's complaining to God. He's saying, How? I don't get it. Now, when, when we complain in prayer, I want to be careful in what I'm asking you to do. When we complain in prayer, we need to first sense and try and discern is what we're after and what we're upset about God's will. Because David was complaining because it was God's will what he was after. It just hadn't come yet. And so David has a certain, I guess you could say, right to complain. He has the righteousness and faith and he's contending with God in that moment. J.I. Packer writes this about complaining prayer. He says, No one likes people who whine and complain. But he points out in the Bible that when bad things happen to good people, they complain with great freedom and at considerable length to God. And Scripture does not seem to regard these complaining prayers as anything other than wisdom. He says, complaints are integral to the new regenerate life of communion and prayer. So complaint will be, or at least should be, a recurring element in the praying of a born-again Christian. We get to complain, but we must first ask ourselves, is what I'm after righteous and good? Because these, these heroes that we've gone through so far are in touch. They're walking, they're talking, they're praying, and they're asking, is it good? Now, the third thing that we learn from these heroes of faith is that their faith kept them active and obedient. We take a, a deep dive here into Abraham and Sarah. So move our diorama here and go in front of a, a tableau of Abraham and Sarah sculpted there, probably in front of their son Isaac, or maybe waiting for him. Maybe, maybe the tableaus of them arguing, actually, over the fact that Sarah can't have a baby. 
I think that might be the most engaging and dramatic story. But we see here in the story that it ends well. But first, they themselves, even as heroes, pray in contention and actually even act out of disobedience before they finally come around. So I'm just going to focus on Sarah here. Abraham has plenty of prayers. Abraham is called out. We talked about that, right? So he's responding to God. He's hopeful and he's focused. He's active and obedient. Some of the time, not all the time. He has some times where he slips up. But then we have this central story with, with him and his wife Sarai. That's in Genesis chapter 16, verse 1. Now remember, Sarah is in her old age. That Abraham has been promised a great nation that numbers like the stars in the sky. And he's been traveling, pitching his tent. He's out in exile. And he's probably a little bit like David going, how long? Because you promised a great nation. And I'm really old. And my wife's really old. And nobody this old has kids. Right? So that's the space he's in. And him and Sarah probably at this point become pretty unfocused, I would say, because here's what happens. Sarai, Abraham's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, which was his name at the time again, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant, that it may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So, whose voice did Abraham listen to? God's voice? No. He had a conversation with his wife. And in a moment with a great deal of lack of focus, he listened to the voice of his wife and her desires and her hopes. So after Abraham had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarah, Abraham's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abraham, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong be done to me beyond you. I gave my servant to you your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked at me with contempt. Now, what does that mean? That means that Hagar, the servant who was fertile and could conceive, said, I still got it. And Sarah realized that great hurt was brought upon her. And she didn't immediately go to God. No, she got angry. May the wrong be done to me beyond you, Abraham. She looked at me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abraham said to Sarah, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do it with her, you, her as you please. Then Sarah dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. Of course, there's a whole story there that we don't have time to go into. But the reality is, these great heroes of faith were not perfect all the time. And so while they did keep active and obedient, they didn't always keep active and obedient. And we can learn something by this in our own prayer life, that as people who profess faith, who are praying people, maybe right now who are saying, I ought to pray more, Look at this story as a lesson. That there are times in which we will surround ourselves with people. We will sort of abort, we will put a hold on God's plan. We will say, we'll latch onto one key part of it. And we'll remove it. And we'll take it into our own space. And we will bring it to pass. 
But at that point onward, we are bringing it to pass without him. And so what Sarah did is she took a good thing, a promise of a great nation, and she said, I'm going to do it on my own timeline. She got anxious. She got afraid. She got unfocused. She went out of communion with God. And while she was active, she was not obedient. She was active and disobedient. And the way we know is that she did not listen to the voice of God. And Abraham did not listen to the voice of God. Instead, they listened to the voice of each other in their hurt. Even desiring a good thing, they made it the ultimate thing, above communion with God. Above listening and asking. And above bringing his kingdom to bear in his way. And they said, we'll do it our way. And what happens? Great hurt comes upon them through their disobedience. Now, I'm not saying here that every great hurt and suffering that comes upon us is because of our own disobedience. But I'm also saying that there are many times that through our own disobedience, we make things a lot worse. That in our doubt that God is in fact not a good God, that we take things in our own hands and we, acting as God, bring our own fallen dreams to fruition, and then we get angry at God when they're so awful. And we blame him for them the same way that Sarah blamed Abraham. But we can also see that God is a good God and a merciful God far beyond these short-sighted moments that he seizes every moment of life that he has with them. Now, every moment is urgent. There are people in the story of the Bible who in this disobedience, in this moment, it was sort of the final defining moment. And we understand that those people are bound for hell. So that there is an urgency to be righteous. We cannot rely on the gimmies and the mulligans in golf language to get by. And we cannot rely simply on the fact that um, every life circumstance will be saved somehow for us and take God for granted. But we also must depend on his mercy because we know that we are people that will make mistakes. And through these things we see that Sarah begins to know and that she is defined by a person of faith, believe it or not. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. So even despite all of these tripping and stumbling along the way, she becomes a person that wears a merit badge because she listened ultimately to God. And even though she had Ishmael, who was, became in some ways a thorn for her life, and Hagar, still she was brought Isaac. And so we can see that, that these promises bring us to active obedience. And even when there is disobedience, God is a God of mercy. And I want to move then to our last sort of point here, which is that these heroes of faith are asking and they're listening. So when we see that when, when Sarah did things well, she was asking and yearning and listening. That when Abraham did things well, he was asking and yearning and listening. And the author here goes through a few people just in this litany at the end. He says, I can't even get through all of these people. There's so many. He said, time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, and Samuel, and the prophets. Who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. 
He's saying there, these, these faithful heroes are actually heroes, and they brought heroic things to pass that would not have come to pass had it not been for faith. And all of these people were in this asking and listening dialogue, called and responding with God. Moses called, acts, and obeys. He contends. He says, I wish... I wish you wouldn't ask me to do this. I don't want to do this. But he ultimately obeys. Joshua called and acts. Gideon contends all over the place, has all kinds of tests and trials, but comes to believe that God exists and that he is good and he will reward him. But that is the, the pilgrimage and the better country that we're on to. The steps that we take there are to be understanding that God exists and that he will reward us. So we can look through all these stories and we can see that there is this call and response, this asking and listening. So I want to challenge us as we pray. Some of us are praying mostly in one direction. Either we're doing a lot of listening prayer and we're really uncomfortable with asking. As disciples of Jesus, we're doing a lot of following and we're reading scripture and we're just doing a lot of listening. But we're really timid when it comes to asking. Could be a few different reasons. It could be that we, we just don't want to, we're a little bit afraid of what will happen if we ask. Because when you ask, you're putting yourself out there and saying, pick me. Or it could be that we're, we just don't know if we know what's right. And we're afraid to apply what we're listening to to the world. But Jesus tells us to ask. And it could be that we're doing so much asking in our prayer. So much praying these, these sort of wishful, momentary, talisman prayers of God. Can you please help? Uh, my friends said, can you please help them get better? And we just sort of list these things off as they come. Again, those are not bad. We're doing lots of good asking. But how do you even know you're praying to God? How do you know his character? How do you know what he actually desires unless you're listening and studying scripture? Living through and understanding the faithful lives of these people in this wax museum, this hall of faith. The people in the entire Bible and their stories. Are you listening with Christian community, with people who know God and who you trust? Because some of us, I think, have a really hard time with listening because we ask, how do I discern the word of God? How do I know what he's saying? Tim Keller, in his book on prayer, he says, of course, we should be on guard against both selfish motivations as well as short-sightedness. We should ask God to fulfill our requests with things agreeable to his will. We are to ask God for things that fulfill both our desires and his will and wisdom. But how do we know what those things are? The answer is, of course, that we don't always know. We pray for those things as we can best envision them and with a new open-mindedness, a willingness for God to do something different so maybe it's helpful for you to hear this that even these heroes of faith i'm sure were in these same shoes of not always knowing if abraham had it all laid out for him he would have certainly said sarah no no we're not going to do that but he didn't always know his his world was not painted picture perfect as a future plan and a roadmap that we somehow missed and don't have, and that everybody here in the Bible has. It's not like that. Instead, he is, he is traveling knowing that God is powerful and good, 
The next verse here says, women received back their dead by resurrection. This is the kind of God that we are pilgrimaging to. One that brings women back their dead. The widow that Elijah raised her son. I mean, that's what he's talking about. That we have a God of the resurrection. And that we are to make our life singing pilgrim songs as we journey towards him. Psalm 120 through 136 are called the Psalms of Ascent. And I've been kind of captured by these, sort of learning about them and trying to understand them. These were pilgrimage songs as people went to Jerusalem for the Passover week. They would go through these, singing them to themselves as they hiked this trail in the same way that when we hike a trail, perhaps we have things that we mull over in our mind that take us into a space that remind us. And their things reminded them of who God was. I think of the fact that a lot of times I'll sing a, a, a tune, an old tune. Right? Maybe it's like a, an oldie that you heard on the radio or it's one of your favorite radio tunes. That's what we're singing is we're pilgrimaging. How cool would it be to know and memorize some of these psalms and to be praying in these cycles as we're traveling in our life? Because what that did for them, just as it does for people when they're on a pilgrimage, everything you're doing along the way is therapy. And so these psalms are therapy. And just the fact that we are praying means that we are choosing God in that moment. So in our life, if you're saying, John, I'm discouraged by this, I feel like I don't pray enough, know this. Go and try it. And know that each time you pray, you are choosing that God exists and that he rewards those who care about him. In the language of the author of Hebrews, you are saying that Jesus is better. The whole book of Hebrews, this is the idea. Jesus is better. Comfort, Jesus is better than comfort. Money, Jesus is better than money. Fame, Jesus is better than fame. Stability, Jesus is better than stability. Family, Jesus is better than family. Whoa. Or this, perfect church attendance, Jesus is better. Disciple to Jesus is better. Perfect tithing record, disciple to Jesus is better. Perfect theology, disciple to Jesus is better. Remarkable charisma, administrative. It doesn't matter what the gifts are. Discipleship to Jesus is what matters. Because he has provided something better for us, a heavenly city that he is calling us to. Philippians 3.20 says, for our citizenship is in heaven, for which also we eagerly await for a Savior and the Lord Jesus Christ. And of course, Jesus taught us how to pray. So as, as we bow our heads and pray, I'd like you to pray with me, if you can remember it all, the Lord's Prayer. So let's pray together. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.